We are going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And so, if you would like to uh, open your Bibles and be ready to dive into that passage with us. For those that are here, when it comes time, it will be on the screen. But I wanted to start by telling a story. We, um, for our seniors in high school, our graduating seniors, we take what we call a senior trip. And every year or many years, we've gone to the same place, the Shawnee National Forest, where there's this incredible um, place for hiking, all these huge rocks that you can go to and go from one to the next, and it's a, a lot of fun. I think everyone that has been on one of those trips does remember it. But there are, there's a uh, kind of a secret path down from those rocks that I always like to go to after I discovered it, and it has these just wonderful trails in there. And so often I will kind of break apart from the group and climb down and walk some of those trails. And while I was doing that, um, in 2016, a few students came with me. They were intrigued by the idea of secret trails, and so they came along with. And as we're walking and talking, after, after a few moments, or as we're walking along the pathway, all of a sudden I hear one of them, Lucia, a foreign exchange student from Spain, cry out. And we stopped to turn to see what, what she was shocked by, and all of a sudden, she points to, on the pathway, a snake, which to my eyes, not paying super close attention, I think I just thought was a stick. Some of us had already walked across it. I was literally about to step on it. And what I didn't know is that rattlesnakes do not rattle unless they are coiled up. But if you happen to catch one as it's moving, it will usually stop and make no sound alerting you to his presence. However, had I stepped on that snake, I am sure that I would have become aware of its presence very, very quickly. We had our moment of dealing with the fear of almost stepping on a rattlesnake, and then we started back to the uh, meet up with the rest of the group. And while we were on the way, we encountered something. You see, snakes, they often shed their skin. And one of the things that's, that's incredibly Strange about that process is the skin, especially if on a close look, can still look like the snake. And one of the things that we know, and hopefully you can acknowledge this about yourself as well, is that even if you're not afraid of snakes, a surprise by one of those snakes is enough to, uh, to really grab your attention and cause a fright. So we do have a brief video I would like to show of what these students did when we came upon this, uh, this snake skin. Go ahead and play that for me. We're sorry, but we're having trouble playing this video. This really needs to happen because it's so wonderful. I can describe it if I need to. Can we try to refresh it? It's worth taking a moment. <laughs> I've been avoiding looking at Lori Kinsinger the entire time. Is it, is it going to play for us or no? Well, I will share the video to my Facebook page for those who would like to, to watch later. Miss Janet, don't worry about it any longer. But to tell you what happened, Alexa, who was a, uh, a foreign exchange student who was staying with the Kinsingers, someone who dearly loved Lori, loves Lori, um, took this snake skin, and while Lori was posing for a picture with my wife, Lisa, 
Instead of taking a picture, I was videoing because I knew what was about to happen. And Alexa runs at Lori with this snakeskin. And let me say that Lori expressed what most of us would express when suddenly confronted with a snake. She did so, though, in her signature Lori way, which is just so delightful. This video is worth watching again and again and again. But humans and snakes, we have an interesting relationship. One of the things that's interesting about human beings is our eyesight makes us more capable of spotting snakes than any other creature alive. And in fact, our eyesight is so good at seeing contrast and movement, many people believe, specifically because, especially early on, it was so important for human beings to be able to see snakes. Because a snake can, can take a life, it can cause all kinds of problems, and so we always needed to be able to see them. And I think also this fear that we have deep in our core when confronted, especially by a snake we weren't expecting, tells us something important about this connection with humans and snakes. There's some kind of conflict there. And I think we see the origin of that here in Genesis 3, where not a normal snake is presented to us, but a serpent, a snake, nonetheless. Now, part of this series that we're in has been to, to help us to understand the characters of the Bible, the, the setting that the rest of the Bible happens within. Because as we understand the characters in the Bible, we're going to be better able to, to grapple with, to understand the story and the true meaning, full meaning of the gospel. So today we're talking about the snake in the garden and about his activities still today. Now first, I do want to take a moment just to make a, a quick comment about this theme of spiritual warfare. There are those who find the idea of the devil very difficult for them to, to believe. Or they, they can believe perhaps in the devil, but not, not something like demons. Spiritual warfare just seems a little too far-fetched. And this is always very curious to me, because if we can believe that God is real, that there is a creator who sustains us moment by moment, a God who loves us so much, he sent his son to take on human flesh, to die for our sins, and through his resurrection, and our participation in it, we can be saved. If we can believe that, I don't know why we would draw the line at spiritual warfare. But I do want to encourage you that, that if you're someone who's really wrestled with this idea, with believing it, that if it's true, there is an evil one who delights in your difficulty believing that he's real. And so just for today, I ask that you would suspend that disbelief and listen, and then decide again afterward. Now, the, the story in Genesis 3 happens in the Garden of Eden. We talked about this last week and the week before, this life that Adam and Eve had in the Garden, a life of provision from God. 
where they were to begin this calling to, to rule, to govern the earth, but also to tend the garden. A place where all their needs were provided for, and there was only one rule. One thing they were commanded not to do, and that was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so now we will read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Can I have those that are with me please stand for the reading of Scripture? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat, from the uh, eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. You may be seated. Now this serpent character does not just show up here. We do see him in several different places throughout Scripture, and we're going to be looking at a few of those in a moment. However, I do want us to take a little bit of a closer look at this passage. Genesis 3, 1 to 5 first. Now the first thing that you'll see is that the serpent is called crafty. And that word crafty, it's hard because is crafty a good thing or a bad thing? If a person called you crafty, would that be a compliment or not? This word actually means something like prudent or wise. This is the, this is the wisest. Of the animals that are in the garden. And then he says to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any fruit or any tree in the garden? In other words, he he asks a question already here at the beginning, trying to plant doubt. The woman said to the serpent, We may no no no, we can eat from fruit in the from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, one with the knowledge of good and evil. And then she adds something. She adds, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And attentive, attentive readers will notice that that was not in God's command, that they could not touch the tree. However, I think that this is something that every person understands. If there is a thing that will cause you death, it's not just don't go in it, but don't go near it. Right? That is a, that is a very logical step to take. And so she says this to the serpent, but then the serpent says, you will not certainly die. He lies. And in so doing, he communicates to Eve that God has lied. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now there's a lot there, and Pastor Ben's going to talk more about this next week. What we can see from the serpent in this story is his desire is to cause the death of Adam and Eve, the human beings that God has created and put in the garden. He tricks them. 
But this isn't a, a kind trick. This isn't the kind of trick that we played on Lori and wish we could play on her again and again. This is something insidious. His desire is murder. And not, not just murder in a physical sense, but to cause death forever to human beings. To take God's plan and desires and to ruin them. To steal from him. And so I want us to look at these other passages that reveal a little bit to us about the evil one. First, in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, this is a story that I'm sure many of you have heard many times, where Isaiah, he's taken up into the throne room of God. And if you know the story, he talks about, I was taken up into to the temple, to the heavenly temple. And there I see God on the throne, and above him were angels, seraphs, each with six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And then you can just imagine, I get goosebumps when I think about it, the power that he must have heard come from them as they sang. But the word is like a sing shout. It's not a quiet singing, but a loud one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what blew my mind when I discovered it is that this word seraphim for the angels above the throne of God is serpent. You see, the serpent that's in the garden isn't just a snake. It's a, it's a divine being. It's something that Eve would have recognized. I think it's a member of God's divine counsel, which we've spoken of before. This is someone who Eve associates with God. Not thinking that he is God, but he's one of God's creations, one of God's team coming to Eve and tricking her. The serpent is not just a snake. The word seraphim is the same thing, a serpent. And these serpents we see in the throne room of God, that's who the serpent is. If you've ever wondered why Eve doesn't freak out when the serpent talks, I think this is why, because it was not just a snake. It was something much, much more. And then another passage that reveals to us something important about this being is Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 to 19. And if you're interested in these, you can write these passages down. I'm not going to read them in full. I'm just going to tell you what they reveal about him. In Ezekiel 28, we learn that this is a, a, a being who's accustomed to being around the throne of God. That's, that was made perfect in beauty and wisdom. Made perfect in beauty and wisdom. Was given many blessings and great honor. This was a being who was made and was high, was powerful, was beautiful to behold. And we know that he, we hear that he was created without sin. We wonder sometimes where evil came from. And was, if the devil was, is evil, why did God create him? Well, he was not created evil. He was created without 
sin. But then the sin of pride was found within him, according to Ezekiel, and he was expelled from the garden. Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. Then we jump to Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, and we, we learn that, that he's the morning star, a light bringer. It's where the name Lucifer comes from. And in Isaiah, he's told, you've been cast down to earth, you who once was greater than the nations, because you said in your heart, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And if you recall, we've talked about how the stars are the, the creation of spiritual beings in the book of Genesis and in the Old Testament. And so he's basically saying, I will raise my throne above the other angels. There's only one whose throne is above the angels. He says in Isaiah, I will be like the most high. The evil one said, I will be like the most high. But instead, you've been brought down to the realm of the dead, the depths of the pit. Then in Job chapters 1 and 2, we learn the name Satan, or the title Satan. And it means the adversary. And this is a being who comes to God and wishes to challenge him through one of his worshipers, through Job, a righteous man. And while we can have a lot of questions about what exactly is happening when God says, sure, let's see what happens. And the story of Job is, is tough to, to, to wrestle with. But one thing we notice, and I cannot escape, is that his desire is to inflict harm. He has not given up his pride. He's not given up his mission or desire to ruin God's creation. He desires to harm a righteous man. We also find there that God limits Satan's activity. And while it only happens in that story, I believe that we can know from our experience that that is true elsewhere too. Satan is not just given free reign. God limits what he's allowed to do. And then one more passage, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 9. This is where we hear the story of Satan's rebellion. It's where he's called a dragon, a winged serpent, but not an angel. He's now something else. And the, the passage reads, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so it is not just the evil one who comes into the garden and wants to mess up, to taint, to destroy what God has made, to steal the kingdom God is building. It's not just him. Many other angels follow him. And it's them that we call demons. Now all these stories are from a long time ago. 
But does the serpent, the devil, Satan, is he still working today? I believe absolutely the answer is yes. Now, one of the things that we can ask is, why would he do this? Why does he need or want to destroy what God is building? What caused him to feel pride, a pride so strong that he would rebel against the God who created him? Now, Scripture never says clearly what exactly it was. What I'm about to tell you is, is an opinion of mine. I believe that it has always been God's plan from the very beginning to raise human beings up. We even see in the garden, there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represents wisdom. But I, I, I don't believe that Adam and Eve were never supposed to become wise. I believe they were supposed to become wise by being taught by God over time. And then one day be raised up to be glorified even above the angels. We're going to talk more about this in a few weeks, but, but I want to say just a word about it here. All through the Bible, we see this theme, this story of God choosing the lesser and making them the greater. We see it happening when Abel is chosen over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael. Esau over Jacob, Jake, Joseph over his brothers, Israel, this small nation over every other. God takes the lesser and raises them up again and again and again throughout Scripture. And I believe that this is a testament to the fact that God's love cannot be earned. You can't earn God's love by becoming better, by being stronger, by being more. His love is given and never Earned. The Bible tells us that even in the womb, God favored Jacob over Esau. If there's one time in your life you can be absolutely sure that you've done nothing to earn favor over someone else, it's to be in a womb together. Esau had done no wrong and Jacob no good, and still the one who would be the younger, God favored. Not because Esau had done wrong, but to show that his love is without condition and it's not earned. Now, we spoke before about the angels being created on day four. They are, in many ways, our older siblings, created two days before us in the order. And yet, I believe it was always God's plan to raise us up above them. And I believe that in his beauty and his splendor, Lucifer, the light bringer, the one made perfect, he could not cope with what he saw as this tremendous injustice. And so he hatched his own plan to ruin God's plan, to snatch as many of his beloved human beings away from God as he could. I believe that that's where he fell into pride. And that work continues today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us the God of this age, referring to the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, he's still working against the evil one. Because as this world fell, 
It became a stolen kingdom. It's, Satan's called the God of this world, not because he's equal to God in any way, but because while it's fallen, he's able to work and claim any part of it that he can. And his desire is to claim as many people as he can, not just to tempt them, not just to, to lead them astray, but to murder them forever. He's stolen a kingdom. Now, God has, from the very, very next verses after what we read today, from Genesis 3.15, he tells a story of how he's going to reclaim his creation, of how he's going to reclaim his people. And so that's what we have today. We have God's kingdom and a fallen kingdom in the world, a kingdom of life and a kingdom of death battling one another. And we choose which kingdom we want to be part of. Jesus made a way for us to leave the kingdom of death that we are born into, a kingdom of sin, where we cannot ever taste the eternal life that God created us for and made a way for us through his work, death, and resurrection by our repentance and our commitment and faith to him to become part of God's kingdom instead. That, I believe, is the world that we are living in. But the evil one does not just give up. So how is he still at work Today. The first thing I think that the evil one likes to do is to distract us. His desire is to distract us, to take our eyes away from Jesus. And he does this through our own sinfulness, our own struggles. Do you struggle with your temper? Often you might find yourself shocked at how many times you are presented with an opportunity over and over and over again to lose your temper, pushed in that direction again and again, perhaps especially in those moments when you're preparing to spend time with the Lord or you've just come from spending time with the Lord. Are you frustrated with technology like I am? Then perhaps Sunday morning after Sunday morning there would be technological issues just in an attempt to distract you from the Lord. What is it you struggle with? You're of course capable of taking your eyes off of Jesus because of it on its own, but the evil one wants to use it to take your focus from where it belongs. He distracts us. And the second way he works is to divide us. He works through division. And this happens in a couple of ways. He wants, to, he wants to divide us within ourselves, to cause division within each person. And that looks like this. Some of you probably don't wrestle with much doubt, and I think that that's wonderful. That's a good thing. Some of you do. And here's the thing. Doubt isn't bad. Doubt is one of those opportunities we have to wrestle with the Lord with a big question mark and to continue through the process, trusting in him to come out on the other side, knowing him better. But there is a toxic kind of doubt, 
A doubt that we feel like we can't share or reveal because we're afraid people will not think that we're believers or people will be shocked or think less of us. And so we conceal it from anyone around us and it festers and festers until all of a sudden it's the thing that comes to mind most often when we think about our faith. That is what happens when doubt becomes toxic. And the evil one loves it. Do you feel like there are questions you have you can't ask? It's what the evil one wants you to believe. But we know our Lord. We know that he loves us, that we earn none of that. So we can admit our doubts to him. If you feel like you cannot, please believe me, that's a lie from the evil one. Go to the Lord with your doubts. Also go to those you trust in the church. If you have questions, if you have deep and serious, real questions, your pastors, your deacons, the leaders of church, we will not reject you or think less of you. I know that I have wrestled with very serious doubts in my process of becoming a Christian and going through Bible college and wrestling with what exactly ministry would look like for me. If you struggle with toxic doubt, take the power from the evil one away and reveal it to someone. He tries to divide us within ourselves by sin. There are two men within us. Two people within us. And we do notice that as we, we go to church on Sunday morning, we may be lifted up and reminded of the goodness of God and enjoy our time of worship with him. And then it does not take long where we can be in a completely different place doing things that we know we ought not do. And that divide, widening, is what the evil one wants. He divides us that way, too. He divides us by self-loathing. We can know that God has created us and loved us, and therefore we are good. Not perfect, fallen, and sinful, but we have value, incredible value to God. And yet still we can be plagued with these loathing feelings about ourselves. That is a lie also from the evil one. It happens with shame as well. Everyone else can be loved by God, but I've done something so wrong he can't possibly love me. If you find yourself in wrestling with any of these things, what he wants is for you to do it alone. He wants for it to happen in secret. He wants for you to trust no one, to reveal it to no one. So that the Lord, who loves to speak through his people, cannot speak into it. Please trust me. It's much better to share. To share with someone you trust, but to share. Another way that the evil one works division is within the church. Through interpersonal conflicts. Families that perhaps cannot stand one another. People within families or old friends or just people that never have gotten along. And they rub up against each other and anger one another in such a way that one or both leaves. In the church, whether it be a little division or a big one, divides. He loves to divide the church over theology. We get caught up so much in the small questions that we lose track of the big ones. 
There are thousands, thousands of denominations in America. Thousands of denominations in America. And sometimes the splits are over things so small that somehow become so important we lose sight of our Lord and we think what matters most is where the choir stands in service. Is it in front or on the side or behind? That sounds like an exaggeration, but churches split and so do denominations over questions like that. And you think, of course, that's so silly. That could never happen here. But I'm sure if you look within yourself, there are things that you are so attached to, you can realize, you can be honest and realize it'd be hard for you to not make them a central issue, even though they're not one of the big things. Maybe what people should wear on Sunday morning, what music we should listen to, or any number of other things. The evil one wants us to split over these things. Or politics. My goodness, it is so rare for churches to have a diversity of beliefs politically within them. And that is a blessing we have at Calvary. But the reason it's so rare is because splitting over it is so easy. Because my goodness, do we not get so wound up about politics that it becomes easy to think other people can't possibly be, be Christians. Because they think differently on these things than we do. And so we don't listen, and we don't grow, and we see people as bad, and we split. The evil one's work is there, too. So, what's the solution to that? The solution is to submit to the Lord, to keep our eyes on Jesus, and to strive for unity. Unity is worth preserving. When a relationship is broken, it is worth reconciling. It is worth forgiving the person, allowing that anger to not rule you, and reconcile that relationship. If there are people here that have broken relationships with other members of our community, please hear me. The Lord wants you to reconcile. The solution is we listen to the Spirit, we keep our eyes on Jesus, and we strive for unity within ourselves and within the church. And the last thing that the evil one wants to, to do to affect his destiny, like to distract, like to divide, and he wants to change destiny. And here's what I mean by that. God's desire for human beings is to know and love him forever. To have fellowship with him and delight in him forever. And that is the very best thing that could ever happen for a human being. And the evil one wants to stop it. Adam and Eve in, our, in this story, they're tricked and tempted and they succumb. They believe for a moment that perhaps God is not the good God they had thought. And so they think perhaps he's holding something good away from them. And they sin. And that sin has catastrophic effects. All sin, by the way, has other effects. We sometimes think that we get away with it if no one else knows. But it changes our character. And that affects the people around us. And it sets us up for bigger falls. Sin is like that. That's why the evil one used it to wreck things. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are born into a fallen world. Sin invaded creation. 
And that's why you and I, we cannot do anything about our own sin. We cannot receive forgiveness based on our own work. Why we must rely on Jesus. See, Satan wants to steal the family that God has created, the Christian community, those that belong to him. And he works to divide us, to distract us, and to change the destiny God desires for us. I know we're going long here, so I'm debating whether to say this, but I'm going to. If you want another view of what this looks like, you can take our current moment as an example. Do you think that the evil one rejoices when people are so wound up seeing each other as, as on opposite sides of his will if they vote one way or the other? I've never encountered a time this divisive. And one of his very favorite machinations within that is issues of race. We see that through the world's history again and again and again. And my goodness, is it happening today. On one hand, people who insist that this is the only thing we should be thinking about and talking about. And on the other hand, people who insist that it's over and it's not a struggle anymore and we can put it away. Now, most people are not absolutely on one side or the other. The problem comes when we don't listen to one another. Division comes. Relationships pull apart or are torn apart. And we see it happen. It may not be in a moment. It can drift. And then after a while, we're no longer seeing those friends. We're no longer going to that church. We're no longer in those relationships. That division is happening Clear as a bell today. And I believe that what the Lord desires from us is to resist by the power of His Spirit, to keep our eyes on Jesus, to hear from one another, and to strive for unity. Because we are on our own, without His help, helpless against the machinations of the evil one and the consequences of sin. Genesis 3.15, though, tells the story as the Lord speaks to the serpent and says, One of her descendants is going to crush you. You'll strike his heel, but he'll crush your head. And then all the way forward, we see the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 16 confirm for us that it is the Lord that he's speaking of, but that is something that we have part in. We are the body of Christ. He works in and through us. Yes, he defeated the evil one at the cross, and he continues to defeat the evil one through the work of the body here today. That's you and me. As we strive for unity, as we hold tight to him and keep our eyes where they belong, the evil one's work is undone. When we think about the serpent, there are some mistakes we can make. We can think about him too little, meaning we just think he doesn't really matter. Meaning that we think that spiritual warfare is a thing that just sounds a little too odd, and it's not something we need to pray about or be aware of. That would be a mistake. 
We could also think about it too much. We could become so consumed with fear that we take our eyes off of Jesus, distracted by the works of the evil one. He delights equally in both. What we need to do is to remember there is someone who desires our death, but there's someone greater who desires our life, a Lord that we can trust, who will protect us, whom we cannot be torn away from. And so we continue in faithfulness, following Jesus, belonging to him, knowing that while the evil one will attack and we will find times that we stumble and fail, that never will we be rejected by our Lord. We are his and his forever. So what do we do? We pray. If you don't pray regularly for protection from the evil one and for awareness of his work, please do so. I do not think that you will be able to, to grow very much if you're blinded to what he's doing. Please pray. Ask for the Lord's help to see, to be protected from, and to resist. I think that we need to submit to the Lord over and over and over again. As temptations rise up, used by the evil one to distract and divide us, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus and submit anew. If, even and especially when it's hard, when it hurts. And then, resist. I think you probably know the feeling, that moment where something is happening within you, and you are aware that the temptation you are feeling is toward something that you ought not do. A word or a tone that you're thinking about saying or using. A thing you're thinking about looking at that you ought not look at. A place you're thinking about going that you should not go. The sin rises up within us. And we're called always by the power of the Holy Spirit to resist. And here's the thing. God has not, does not, and will not ever abandon us. We have his Holy Spirit with us, and he always sends help. The word promises that we will never have to contend with the evil one alone. And so if we rely on the Lord, we will not always succeed, but we will resist again and again. When we fail, we will stand back up and follow Jesus anew. And what we will find one day, I am convinced, when we leave this world and go to the next, is through that whole process of resistance, of seeking after Jesus and avoiding, working against, trying to overcome the temptations that the evil one sends us, we are being grown through that struggle to be more like Jesus. And so I call you, Calvary, friends and family that are here. If you've found yourself down, and I don't mean sad, I mean fallen down, you're having a hard time praying because you feel like something is wrong within you, you can't make yourself go to the Word because you're sure that God is far away or angry, if you've allowed yourself to turn away, it's time to turn back. God has not distanced himself from you. That's a lie from the evil one. His desire is closeness. His 
His desire is intimacy. His desire is to dwell with you forever. And so if you are down, today is the day I want to encourage you. Take up with the Lord. Submit to the Lord. And rise up and follow again. Please pray with me. Father God, we come before you. Lord, and we do, we know and acknowledge that there is so much good for us to be thankful for. And even though, Lord, there is a snake in the garden, even though there is an evil one who desires our eternal death, we know, Lord, that he is not able to take from you anyone that's yours. So, Lord, we ask for your protection as he flails in frustration causing us problems or trouble or temptation. We ask for your protection, Lord. We ask for the strength to resist, that you would speak to us, remind us, call to us, to always keep our eyes on you. But Lord, when we fail, and we know we will, remind us of your love. Remind us of your goodness. Remind us of your forgiveness and mercy and grace. And allow us to stand back up without shame and follow you again, knowing, Lord, that you never expected us to be able to resist him on our own. So what we need is to learn how to better follow you. And then teach us, Lord, how to do it. We pray these things in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.